Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. This morning we're now going to hear the sixth trumpet blown. As, we, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, we've entered into this portion of the trumpet judgments where I believe it really turns to demonic. Uh, we saw that with really the locusts two weeks ago that were unleashed upon this earth. We read, just kind of looking back a little bit in, in chapter 8, verse 1, that as the seventh seal was opened, that the angels in heaven and the saints that are in heaven, they're, they're there waiting in awe, if we could say, and in anticipation for this seventh seal that was on this scroll to be loose, to be broken or opened. And they were waiting in anticipation of what was going to be revealed, what next judgment was going to come down upon this world. We're told that there was silence in heaven for the space of about a half an hour. Silence. Just nothing said, just in anticipation, in awe of what was about to take place. What John sees when this seal is broken, maybe he thought this was going to be the last of the judgments. But what he sees when this last seal is broken is he sees now seven angels standing before God and to each one of those angels was given a trumpet. Then John sees another angel in this vision and this one has that golden censer in its hand holding it. And he comes and he stands before the golden altar of incense where he's waving this censer that is filled with the incense and and the, the smoke is arising and it's the prayers of the saints there in heaven. And I believe even the prayers that they're praying that God's righteous judgments will be fulfilled. It's the prayers of the church that has been raptured and now is in the presence of God. And then we see that the angel, he takes this censer that's filled with the fire from the altar and he puts it with inside this censer and he throws the censer to the earth. This is what John has seen. And we're told that when the censer was thrown that there were noises, there were thunderings, and there was an earthquake that followed. In verse 6, It says, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first trumpet that we've already covered was blown. And hail and fire mingled with blood was thrown to the earth. And we're told that one third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second trumpet is blown and something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea and one-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea life dies and one-third of the ships are destroyed. Now, as I shared, I'm a literalist. When it comes to God's Word, unless it tells me it's symbolic, excuse me, I take it literal. And I'm looking at these things. Don't ask me how it's really going to come about and look. But I take it as literal that God is going to bring these things about in the way that we're reading them. The third trumpet sounds. And a great star falls from heaven burning like a torch. 
and it falls on one-third of the rivers and springs and makes them bitter, and we're told that many people died from the water. The fourth trumpet sounds, and the heavens are struck. One-third, we're told, of the sun, one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars are diminished. Whether in length of day or in brightness, there are diminished, the, the light sources are diminished in our heavens. That should get people's attention. That's never happened, has it? We haven't seen that. God is going to do this supernaturally. Then John sees in verse 13 an angel, or as some Bibles read, an eagle flying through the heavens, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. I'm glad I'm not going to be here. I hope that all of you here this morning can say that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're also happy, thrilled, filled with hope that you're not going to be here during this time. Woe, woe, woe gets my attention. These woes represent the remaining three trumpets which are about to sound. Chapter 9 begins with the sounding of the fifth trumpet, the first woe that John saw. And John sees a star who had fallen from heaven to earth And he, this is personalized, this I believe is speaking of a fallen angel, was given the key to the bottomless pit. And after opening the abyss, John sees smoke coming out from this pit like a great furnace, like a furnace burning. He sees this smoke ascending up out of the pit. And we're told that the smoke that came out of this pit, that it darkened the sun and the sky. And out of that smoke arising, John sees this horde of these creatures coming out of this smoke. And to John, it appears that it's a horde of locusts. That's what it looked like as he sees these things swarming out of this smoke. But these locusts, we're told, were commanded not to hurt grass. They weren't allowed to hurt any green thing or any tree. That's not your typical locust. That's what locusts do. But as John began to look closer at what he was seeing here, it becomes clear that these are not ordinary locusts. That's why I believe we're talking about something demonic here because it's referring to this angel that has fallen, personalizing it, and then these locusts that follow this angel or this fallen angel. We're told that God gives authority. Remember that God is in control. With all of this, it seems like it's crazy, out of control world as these things are. God is controlling these judgments. Remember, this is the wrath of God that is being poured out upon a world that has rejected Christ. And God is also working in his own people, Israel, that he is going to draw a remnant of those people to himself. He's going to save many. His mercy, his grace is being poured out even during his judgments. But he gives authority to these locusts, to go out and to torment people who were not sealed by God. The 144,000 that we read in chapter, they're sealed by God, protected. And I believe even those that have given their life to Christ during the tribulation will be sealed and protected by God. These locusts were told they have a king over them. This king... And his name, we're told, means destroyer. Probably Satan himself. Abaddon, Apollyon. Two names here given in Greek and Hebrew. 
We finished two weeks ago in verse 12 of chapter 9. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. That's just the first woe. Two more are going to follow. It's, it's like you start thinking, that was bad. Tormented for five months and not being able to die. Can anything get worse? Might be you know, what we would think. But it's getting worse. As a matter of fact, as each one of these trumpets is blown, and especially when we get to these last three, they get more severe and more severe. Why? Because God is trying to get the attention of mankind. You'd think they would have got it by now. <laughs> I mean, put yourself... Would, I mean, you saw these things. Wouldn't you get it by now? But, you know, it's amazing when a person's heart is hardened towards God. Sometimes the only place that it's going to go is harder and harder. Remember, I shared that one of two things are happening through these judges. It's either softening people's hearts. It's either bringing them to repentance and calling out to God, or their heart is getting reinforced and harder and harder and harder. Remember that right now in this portion of Revelation that we're in the second half of the tribulation period, a seven-year tribulation period, the second half. Remember that it's in the middle of the tribulation that the Antichrist is going to set up his image in the temple there in Israel. Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24.15 tell us and speaks of the desolation of abomination or the desolation that makes desolate when the Antichrist sets up that image in the temple. At that point, the Jews are going to realize we have been deceived. This false Messiah that has come that has allowed us to rebuild and to go back to our old form of worship, we've been deceived. They're going to flee into the wilderness. And the Antichrist at that point is going to wage a war against the saints, which I believe is speaking of Israel, God's chosen people. They're going to flee, and God is going to protect them in the rock city of Petra for that time when the Lord returns. The first woe was only to hurt men. The second woe that we're going to read this morning is to kill. From hurting to killing. Intensity increasing is what we're seeing. When we read in the book of Genesis, we read about Pharaoh, the Egyptians. We read about the plagues that came down upon them. God told Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he refused. And he refused. And he refused again and again. And his heart became harder and harder and reinforced in his determination, no, I'm not going to let God's people go. It's really what's taking place during the tribulation period. Is God is unleashing these judgments upon this earth. Men's hearts are becoming harder. And really we're going to see in our text this morning that there was no repentance even in all of this. So let's read together the verses and then I'm going to come back and comment on them. Let's read from verse 13 to verse 21. This is the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red. 
hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. But these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent for their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Pretty incredible that this would end with, and they would not repent. In verse 13, let's go back, and let's look a little bit closer at these verses. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. I didn't have time to put a PowerPoint together, being gone this last week, I, I, w- I would have liked to for this because there's some things I think that we, I could have shown, but I, I don't have that. But if you remember those that were here, that this golden altar that stood before the holies of holies out there on that golden altar, which was just a little square like this and about that big, had these four horns on each corner of it. And the whole thing was overlaid in gold. It's referred to as the heavenly altar. In scripture it's it's this particular altar is speaking of the heavenly altar in heaven where there was also an earthly altar that stood in the Jews uh, holy place. No longer there now because their temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but it will be rebuilt. But what we're looking at and what John is seeing here is the heavenly altar. This is an altar that's in in heaven. And the prayers of the saints are what ascend up from this altar as the priest would put the incense upon this altar. Once a year, he would come in with the blood of the bowl and he would dip his finger in that blood. And he would take and he would put his finger on each one of the horns of that golden altar. And what does that speak of? Well, when you think of blood, we think of God's mercy. We think of, of, of just this sanctification by his blood, what Christ has accomplished through this blood, the forgiveness of sins. As that priest would once a year put that blood upon the horns of the altar. By this time, this earthly altar during the tribulation period has already been desecrated the antichrist has already set up his image that's already transpired as this trumpet I believe is being blown here and in a sense what we're seeing here is that this is no longer a mercy uh, uh, an altar excuse me of mercy But it now has become an altar of judgment. As that angel threw that censer down to the earth. And the judgments began to come forth. This is now really God's judgment. Really against that desecration of his temple. Verse 14 says saying to the sixth angel who had the, trump, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. What we see here is now really the call for judgment. Judgment now is going to come forth. Here's this angel with this trumpet and this releasing of these four angels. Now, When we read about these angels being bound, we know that God's messengers, God's 
messengers in heaven that he uses, the good angels, if you want to say, they wouldn't be bound. But what are bound, I believe, are demonic angels. And that's what I believe that we're looking at here. Not good angels, but demonic angels that are being released by God. God's allowing them to be released. On earth, we're called to be a witness to everyone now. We're to be extending mercy as Christians to the ungodly in this world, to those that don't know Christ, to the wicked, even those people that are doing heinous crimes, those in prison, those in play. We're to be praying that God's mercy, that they would be saved. We should be looking for opportunities to be a witness to to the most vile sinner, really, that's out there. That's the love that our God has towards mankind. He's not willing that any should perish. He's merciful. He's compassionate towards the ungodly. We were ungodly sinners that gave our life to Christ. He saved us. We know what we've been saved from. And he has that same desire towards all. But when we're in heaven, things are going to change. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be in full agreement with the judgments that God is unleashing upon this earth. We're no longer going to be calling out for mercy. We're, I believe, going to be praying that God's righteous judgments are going to be fulfilled. We're going to know as we, it's hard for us to see that now and understand that now in our finite minds. But we're going to know that these are God's righteous judgments. They're just and they're true. And as God unleashes these judgments upon this earth and the unrepentant that are there, we're going to know and, 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 and be okay And really, we're going to be saying, Lord, your judgments are righteous and true. Let them come forth. We know that in the Old Testament, we can read in 1 Kings 150 about a man that came. He was afraid of Solomon. His name was Adonijah. And he arose and he took hold of the horns that were there on that altar. And basically he was taking hold of those horns. He made his way into the holy place and grabbed onto the horns and really was crying out for mercy. And he took hold of the horns of the altar saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. He looked and viewed that thing as an altar of mercy. He knew that it was. But what we're seeing here now is really an altar of judgment. But now, John hears this voice coming from the horns of mercy. We'll call it the horns of mercy. He hears this voice coming from them, but the words that he's hearing are speaking of judgment. He says, release the four angels. The voice says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And as I've already shared, I believe these are demonic angels. We can also see again God's complete sovereign control over all principalities and powers. Don't ever be deceived that God is out of control or that things are out of control or that God somehow doesn't have control over certain things that are evil in this world. Whether they be kings and governments and nations, God has his hand and his control upon all of them. Satan is on a short leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. God is the one here giving the command to release the angels. God is the one who has given the authority to these demons to go out and to to kill a third of mankind. We're not told how these angels are bound. 
it doesn't tell us there, or how they are released by by this angel. But we know that God has kept them bound for all of these years, from the time probably that they were cast out of heaven. They've been bound in this place for this particular time, for this particular hour that God has designated that only he knows. Remember Judas Iscariot, the night that Jesus was betrayed? He followed the Lord for three years, walked with the other disciples. It was on that night as he sat there at the Last Supper that Jesus told Judas, Judas, go do what you must do. It was time. Your hour has come, Judas. Go do what you must do. And he left that room and he went out to betray betray the Son of God. Is God in control? Was Jesus in control that night when he told Judas, go do what you must do? The hour has come to release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. These angels being bound, I believe, must, it, it, it must be supernatural. It's a supernatural way of binding. We read in the book of, uh, uh, we read, excuse me, in chapter 20 of Revelation that when John saw this is another angel coming down from heaven, this angel had a key to the bottomless pit, and I've read this before, and he had this great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan. And we're told here that he bound him for a thousand years. When the millennial reign of Christ begins, Satan is going to be bound supernaturally. Somehow God is going to take and bind Satan for a thousand years. And then he's going to cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And he's going to put a seal on him. He's going to be for a thousand years. God's in control. I'm done with you for a thousand years, Satan. He binds him up and casts him in to this place where he's held. And then we're told that he would not be able to deceive the nations for that thousand year period until the time is finished. But after these things, we're told he must be released for a little while. And it will be a short while because he's going to go out deceiving the nations once again and God's going to put a stop to it. You see, God is showing us through all of this, I'm in control. I I have the authority to bind and to loose, to let, you know, God's in control. I like that. Verse 15 says, So the four angels who had been prepared, or we could say they've been reserved, prepared or reserved for this special purpose, for the hour, the day, the month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Notice how he puts that? The hour, the day, the month, and the year... God, precisely, for this time, it could literally read this way, the ones having been prepared is really what's being said here. God has prepared them for what he's about to use them in. Just as Judas Iscariot really, in a sense, was prepared for that night, That didn't catch Jesus off guard. He didn't go, Judas, I didn't know you were going to do this. (laughs) You caught me off guard. I thought you were one of us. He went out and did, and and the Bible says that Satan entered him, and, and Judas went out and did what he did. In Jude 1, 6, we read, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, Speaking about those fallen angels, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. 
You know, when we look at numbers uh, in throughout the Bible and really throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen that the number seven throughout the book of Revelation speaks of completeness. We saw that in the seven golden candlesticks in the, in the first part of Revelation there, speaking about the church representative of the seven churches. And so the number seven goes all the way through. Well, the number four also is an important number. Uh, the number four actually really speaks of the world and it speaks of the global effects that are going to take place upon this world. We read, we read in uh, Revelation 7 about the four winds, remember that? And the four corners, the four winds that were being held back, and the four corners of the earth. In Revelation 4, we read about the four living creatures, those angelic beings. Speaking of the inhabitants of the world, we see them listed throughout the book of Revelation in four groups. Throughout uh, their, the Revelations are listed as kindreds, tongues, peoples, and nations. That number four. Here's this altar with the four horns of mercy. The judgment that is now being leashed out. When these four angels are released... It also appears that they have one who is leading them. And this is another reason why I believe that we're talking about something demonic here. If these four angels that are being released are demonic, then this army that is following them as their leaders or commanders, if you want to say, I also believe that they are demonic. One third of mankind will be killed by these four angels and their army. We see that these trumpet judgments, uh, that there's a similar pattern that uh, goes through all of them. The first trumpet was uh, the third of all the trees were burned up. The second trumpet was the third of the sea uh, became blood. Uh, The third trumpet was the third of the rivers. The fourth trumpet, the third of the sun, moon, and stars. The fifth and the sixth trumpet we're going to see are demonic against one-third of mankind. It's just, it's God's way. Don't ask me why, but one-third. And it's not like wiping out the whole world. God is systematically taking and little by little just increasing and making it worse and worse as these judgments are unleashed. I shared a while back here that By this time, by the end really of this seventh trumpet, two and a half billion people in this world will have died. Two and a half, that's half of of the remaining world population if the Lord were to come back today. Seven billion in the world, a couple billion Christians, two and a half billion people have already died by this time in the book of Revelation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when we, when we looked at that in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, Jesus said, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. You see, God is going to cut this short. Could you imagine if he just let the world run its course to the very end? That's what Jesus is saying. You would, the whole, we'd wipe ourselves out. God, really, in his mercy, is intervening into mankind's life. We read in verse 16, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. John is specifically hearing a number here. 200 million. Now, it actually reads two myriads of myriads, which is a way of saying really a countless number. It's like what we read in Revelation 5.11. 
when it talked about those that were seen in heaven by John. And he says, and I saw this multitude, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, it was an innumerable amount. But here he's saying specifically this 200 million man army. Now, again, we're in this, as I shared last, or a couple weeks ago, chapter 8 and 9 are the two chapters out of the book of Revelation that you have probably the most amount of speculation from people. Lots of different opinions about what is taking place. Is this really demonic army or is this really a natural army? Is this real men that uh, have been demon-possessed and they're being led out by these demonic commanders? You have all sorts of different opinions as to what this army really is going to look like. For me, and I hope for you, it's a lot easier for me to read the book of Revelation unless I see some indicator to tell me that it's different than just reading it for what it means. I just take it as literal. And I've been saying that all along. So my opinion is of this particular text is that we're talking about these four angels, demonic angels, being, and them leading this demonic army. And we're going to see the description now really of what, what John sees. Some have thought also that this particular battle that we're reading about here in chapter 9 is the same battle that is going to be spoken of when we get into Revelation chapter 16. Now, when we get to Revelation 16, we're going to see the battle of Armageddon. And we're going to see the kings of the east in this battle and them gathering for this great day, this great battle that is coming. And so they they connect the two. Uh, I don't see that. I, I, I know that there are good Bible expositors that teach that and believe that. Uh, there are some that have, have put, I actually believe, have believed this in the past and thought this in the past. And I, and I have to tell you, I think I've changed my thoughts on it. But, you know, a lot of times people take this 200 million and they relate it to China that years ago that China says they boasted that they could man a 200 million man army. That they could put together that Time Magazine posted it years ago. And there's a lot of Bible, uh, uh, prophecy expositors that got on that and said, you know what, this is, I believe, a fulfillment of prophecy that China could actually man that size of an army. Uh, there are a lot that really question that their ability to be able to do that. Uh, I'll read you what one commentator writes about it just because I think it's, it's good what they wrote. Um, according to General William K. Harrison an expert in military logistics, an army of 200 million could not be conscripted, supported, and moved to the Middle East without totally disrupting all societal needs and capabilities, as General Harrison brings out on this aspect of Revelation. God has made men with certain limitations, in the actual rising and transporting of an army of the size spoken of in verse 16 completely transcends human capability. All the Allied and Axis forces at their peak in World War II were only about 70 million. The World Almanac speaks of that. Thus, it seems better to understand the vast number and description of the horses as indicating demonic hordes. That's his interpretation. Uh, Another man by the name of Arnold uh, Frutenbaum wrote this. To summarize why these 200 million are demons and not Chinese, four things should be noted. First, they are led by four fallen angels. Second, the location of the army is stated to be the Euphrates where Babylon is located, which is the future, which in the future will be the headquarters of the counterfeit trinity. Third, the description given in the text rules out his this army's human or this army's being human, and fourth, the kind uh, fourth, the kings of the east are not connected with this at all. That's his interpretation of this particular text. 
I, with that said, I tend to believe that this is demonic. It's the way I'm seeing it now, though in the past I've thought, yeah, man, that sounds pretty incredible. China boasted of that. Is, is that what we're talking about? It seems more conceivable to me that what we're talking about here is a demonic invasion, just as we read about the locust uh, judgment prior to this one. Now John begins to describe in more detail in verse 17 what this demonic army looks like. Look at verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, Joel, the prophet Joel, and I keep referring back to Joel because that particular uh, prophet spoke much of the end times events. This is what he prophesied. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. I'm reading from Joel 2, 4 through 5. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they ran. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Now, we have to keep in mind that if this is demonic, if this is something that is beyond what normally we look at, there are obviously a lot of people that get into this text and they start looking at this description and they start coming up with all these military uh, machinery and, and you know what and I, I have to tell you when I read it I go you know that seems real logical what I'm reading there does sound like you know did John just see something he couldn't relate to this military equipment that he's never seen before so he had to put his own words to it and this is what he came up with this is what one commentator wrote of this chapter uh, this is, uh, his name is Monty Mills. He wrote, John was writing to address with no knowledge of mechanized warfare. To them, Calvary was the most formidable military force. So naturally, he described his vision in terms to which his readers could relate. The mounts John saw may well be advanced military equipment which even we may not know how to describe but when he described when but which he described using the vocabulary and references of his reader so many he's just one of many that have take this text and they say what i believe john is seeing is something future that he couldn't do anything other than to put it into his own words Uh, Mills goes on to suggest that John saw something like tanks, helicopter gunships, and other modern mechanized equipment. He uh, realized that that these were futuristic weaponry. Uh, Then he translated this down into terms of Calvary images for his readers. And this is how this commentator describes it. If helicopters... Uh, if helicopter gunships, then he would have mentioned, uh, well, excuse me, let me back up. If John had been shown modern military tanks, he would have undoubtedly mentioned something like chariots with multiple wheels. If helicopter gunships, then he would have mentioned flight or perhaps like an eagle, etc. He clearly saw some sort of animals which were mounted by riders Understanding this army to be demonic in origin solves many of the conjectural problems posed by attempts to find natural fulfillments in modern warfare, recognizes their huge number, and explains how they are led by four malevolent angels. And so you have both sides of it. You guys pick which one you like. You know, I'm going to go the demonic route. If you want to say these are weaponries in, in modern day, I'm good with that. I won't argue with it because there's a lot of people really on both sides of the fence that have both views. Let's, um, let's, let's finish in verse 20 and 21. 
Verse 20 says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols, gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You know, it gives this list, uh, like so often we see these lists. We see Paul do it in Romans, and it just gets down to the end, and it just starts listing about idolatry and about all these various types of sins of the flesh of mankind. And, but the point is, is that there's no repentance. God is unleashing these judgments upon mankind, but how does a person truly come to repentance? Did you know that repentance... And the repentance that was granted to you to receive Jesus Christ, that that in itself is really a gift of God. God grants repentance. God enables somebody to feel the conviction of his Holy Spirit and say, God, I need you. I need forgiveness. And to turn in repentance. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... If God is still tugging at your heart, you'll know it. (laughs) You know it. You can sense it inside. You, you, You just feel like, you know what, I'm not sure, I'm not, if I'm ready. And if you sense that this morning and you're not sure and you feel that tugging in your heart, that might be God calling you to repent. To say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I failed in this life miserably. I need you. I need your forgiveness. And you know what God will (laughs) do? Look what he'll do. He'll open his arms up and he'll say, I forgive. I forgive you. I cleanse you of all of your sin. Now turn and go the other way. Don't follow the same path that you're on. I think you guys can see, I believe what I'm reading here. I believe this 100%. I believe that Jesus Christ is alive, real, in my heart, and my desire is that every single one of us here knows Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you don't, if you're not 100% sure, then come up to me after service. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward or do anything. Come up to me after service and say, you know what? I want to pray and make sure in my heart that I know Jesus Christ. If there is even a slim chance that what I'm saying here is true, I wouldn't want to be here. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to take it for a chance. You know, I would say, God, I need you, and I don't understand all this stuff that's being said right here, but one thing I know is that I'm unfulfilled and I'm empty inside and I need you. And if you could just simply say that, that's all you need to know. You don't need to know the whole Bible and know everything about it and everything I'm saying right in this message this morning but I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Repentance for us as believers is probably, and it's been said, it's probably one of the most beautiful words in our Christian language. Repentance. That we have the ability to be able to go before the Lord, repent of our sins, And have a God, the God that created the heavens and the earth, say, I forgive you. I cleanse you. I make you right. I restore you. I put you back in that right relationship with me. Incredible word. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but you need repentance in your own heart maybe you're toying with sin 
Maybe there's things that maybe you're distant from God. Could be a number of things. Could be a lot. It, the list could go on. I would like to ask that you would stand to your feet if you're a believer. Stand to your feet and just say, God, I'm standing before you because I need repentance in my heart. If you're here and you feel that tug on your heart to do that and you don't do it, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't want to be in that place because you know what? God is serious. God is serious about sin. And God desires that we would walk in holiness and repentance as believers. And if you're here and you feel that tug, if you don't, you'll know if you don't sense or feel any tug from the Lord in your heart to stand to your feet, then don't. It's not an emotional plea, but if you sense that God is telling you to stand, then you need to stand so that we can pray. But it's your heart before God. Father, we just come before you this morning. And Lord, it's so incredible what you have done to give us eternal life. And Lord, you allow us, Lord, to come in repentance time and time again. And you forgive. And you forgive. And you forgive once again. And Lord, we just sit and on. We just wonder, how could you? But you are a, le- a loving and compassionate, a God that is slow to anger. And Lord, you desire, Lord, for us to come in repentance to you. And I pray, Lord, for those that are standing before you, Lord, for that restoration for that strength to turn from those things that might be drawing them away from you. Or maybe it's just that lack of zeal for you and the things of God. That you would restore that hunger and that thirst for righteousness, Lord, not just in those that are standing, but in all of us. That we would hunger for righteousness that we would hunger for truth. And Lord, as we empty ourselves of self and sin, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Give us all that we need, Lord, to follow hard after you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Mm-hmm.